Please be seated. To those of you listening to us on the internet, to the men and women in our armed forces, wherever you may be, to the members and guests gathered here at beautiful Savior Lutheran in Milwaukee, grace be to you and peace. From God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. The word of God upon which we base our message this morning is the Old Testament reading that you heard from Ezekiel, read before chapter 2. The first five verses, I recall just these words. Whether these rebellious people listen or not, they will realize that a prophet has been among them. so nice this morning I got a new pair of glasses back I can actually see you out there it's so pleasant In the name of Jesus Christ our Savior my beloved the words before us are so totally out of our experience from Ezekiel, who lived 600 years before Christ, said, I'm going to try to create a bizarre story to, to at least get us into this whole thing. Imagine if either Iran or North Korea someday became so powerful that they invaded the United States and, uh, let's, let's say it's Iran, and led away a goodly share of the population to Iran as captives. And, it, and while they were staying, while we were staying in that, as captives in that land, a prophet rose up among the people designated to do so by God and told them, told us, you're going to be here for 70 years. And uh, by the way, uh, the Capitol, the White House, and they're all going to be blown up and destroyed. In fact, entire Washington, D.C. And you say, ah, come on, that never happened. And no matter how God's prophet would say, yeah, this is going to happen, and it's because of your rebellious ways. You're like actually like a, a, a rebellious teenager practicing illicit sex, drugs. You're not all, gone all the time, creating anger and anxiety. That's how you're treating God, and that's why you're here, and that's what's going to happen. Well, that person happened to be Ezekiel, and he wasn't over in Iran. He was actually in Israel. Uh, captive in Babylon, about a thousand miles from Israel, where Jerusalem was located, where the people had been led away for, as captives. And first of all, he had three messages. The first message to the people while they were over there to try to get them to stop their rebellion against God was to tell them, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Because they were saying, ah, it never happened. We're going to be here a few years and then we're going home. He said, no, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. It was a message of destruction. It was a message of punishment. It was a message to bring them to repentance. But that wasn't his only message. Then his second message was after the people found out that their city and their temple indeed had been destroyed. There was a temptation to despair. All is lost. And then the message of Ezekiel was one of consolation and encouragement. No, no, God's going to take care of you. In fact, one day, he's going to destroy all the nations that were your enemies, and he'll bring you home again. 
And then there was a, a third message that Ezekiel preached to the people. Because after they lived there for a time, they were getting pretty comfortable over in Babylon, that home away from home. They were setting up businesses. Health and education was really pretty good. And then Ezekiel said, no, you can't get too comfortable here. He tried to keep a nucleus together of people who yearned for the homeland to go back and build Jerusalem and the temple once again. Now, as a visual aid for the people over there in Babylon, captives, God made Ezekiel do a whole bunch of really weird things. He had him go to the marketplace, and he says, I want you to take a, ta a clay tablet and draw a picture of what Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, looks like, you know, from, the, from, down, from top. Place it in front of you, and then I want you to lie on your left side, tie yourself to the ground for 390 days. Now, I don't think he stayed there for 24 hours. But 390 days, he went out to the marketplace, lay down on his left side, and he could only eat eight ounces of food every day. After the 390 days were over, then he said, now I want you to lie on your right side in front of that uh, depiction of Jerusalem for 40 days, tied on your, right, on your right side. You can only eat eight ounces of food. Now, you know what he was trying to tell the people by that visual aid? That for Israel, the kingdom up north, they were going to receive 390 years of punishment for their rebellion. And their cities would be laid to siege. You know what's happening when, when you, a city is under siege? You get war rations, only eight ounces a day. And down south in Judah, God said, you're going to be punished for 40 years, and eventually Jerusalem will fall. God made Ezekiel do a bunch of other weird stuff. He said, uh, when your wife dies, I don't want you to mourn for her at all. God was giving Ezekiel the message that he should go out and tell the people not to cry so hard about their city that was destroyed, but to cry about their sins that caused it all in the first place. Then he told them, uh, what I want you to do is shave off all your hair and your, your entire beard, weigh them in three scales, but take just a little portion of your hair and put it in your, uh, your garment to represent a little bit of remnant of all God's people who would eventually go back and be faithful to the Lord in the Holy Land once again. Now, I'm sure that to the people around Ezekiel out there in captivity, he looked like a nutcase. Maybe you remember some of those old cartoons, you know, on the paper, now on the Internet, of uh, the prophets that were going around with those sandwich boards, you know, and it said, repent, for the end is near, and people's, uh, oh, there's a bunch of wackos. But God armed Ezekiel with the Spirit and with the Word. And the people would not listen, even though he called them to repentance. And God said, well, even if they don't repent, and even if they don't listen, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So the question for us this morning is, was Ezekiel a success or a failure? Well, it depends upon how you define success and how you define failure. Do you define success and failure according to the world's standards or according to God's standards? The world de defines success and failure very simple, wa simple ways. Who's on top? Who's on the bottom? 
Who's on top is success. Who's on the bottom is failure. Who's in first place? Success. Who's in last place? A failure. Milwaukee Brewers are success. Miami Marlins, failure. God's standards of success are completely different from the world's understanding. God measures success according to faithfulness to his word. And so we ask this morning, how are we doing as beautiful Savior Lutheran Church here in Milwaukee? Success or a failure? Well, the world's way of gauging success is by numbers and size. How's your church attendance? How's your membership roster? What do your buildings look like? What's your budget? How are you respected in TV, in uh, your community? Do you have, are you on TV? Bigger is better. It's kind of interesting. The average size of the typical, you know, as you take them all together, in the United States of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the average congregation is about 200 members. Are we a failure? The lesson for today is that God looks at things differently than the way the world looks at them. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel was simply called to be faithful to God's word. Don't really worry if they're going to listen to you or not. It could get you really depressed. Or it could boast you up with pride, you know, if all of a sudden big numbers. Sort of like when I give my message on Sunday morning. I don't really know who's uh, daydreaming, who's sleeping, who's accepting the message, who believes it or not. That's out of my control. That's in God's control. My responsibility as your called pastor is simply to be faithful to the word, to communicate it. The success and the results of the proclamation, that's all in God's hands. That's what God was saying, Ezekiel, that's you. Take a look at the gospel this morning. Jesus comes into his hometown of Capernaum. He's rejected. He's rejected so hard and so bad that it says he couldn't do any miracles. That doesn't mean that he couldn't have the power to do miracles. They didn't want him to do miracles. Virtually kicked him out of town. Isn't this the carpenter's kid? Jesus successful? Or was he a failure? He was faithful to his father's word, to proclaiming the message, but he never had any money, no house, no prestige, only rejection. In the eyes of the world, he was a failure. In the eyes of his father, he was a success. And then there's the Apostle Paul that we talked about in the epistle this morning. He felt like uh, sometimes like he was a failure. He looked like a failure. Said that he had a recurring problem. We don't really know what it is. It could have been a touch of epilepsy, malaria, lung disease. Just kept bugging him and bugging him. Couldn't do, it felt like he couldn't do his job. One of my brothers years back uh, had back surgery. He's been in pain ever since. Not, you know, the debilitating so much, but sort of debilitating. He said, you know, Rick, if I didn't have this pain anymore, he says, I'm afraid I'd be a maniac because I could do everything. But now I can only do about 50% of the stuff I want. God wanted Paul weak so that Paul would understand when there was success, where the success came from, and it was in God's hand, what God did. St. Paul was weak, 
So he recognized God's strength. And so it is that God's standards of success are a whole lot different than our standards. Uh, was a couple weeks ago we had the uh, patriotic parade. Uh, in the past we had about 70 kids, 70 parents. This last uh, week we only had about, the last couple of weeks, only about 40. And Joan was wondering, well, why? Maybe it's because a lot of the kids are growing up in the neighborhood. They didn't want to join in. Well, then the fire truck came and uh, had never come before and, and led the parade. And all of a sudden, the people came out. You know, so, oh, yeah, a lot of people, success. Few people, failure. The success is in the proclamation. You can do everything and still uh, feel like you're defeated. No success. I wonder what Paul felt like. Here he is. He was really intelligent, uh, promoted the gospel very effectively. He went to Athens, where all the intellectuals were. And he went, went out into the court, uh, court place, the main court, and he, and he preached to him. He says, God overlooked the times when people didn't know any better. But now he commands everywhere, everyone to turn to him and change the way they think and act. He has set a day when he is going to judge the world with justice and he will use a man he has appointed to do this, Jesus. God has given proof to everyone that he will do this by bringing this man back to life. When the people of the court heard that a person had come back to life, some began joking about it. While others said, we'll hear you talk about this again some other time. With this response, Paul left the court. Some men joined him and became believers. With them were Dionysius, who was a member of the court, and a woman named Damaris, and some other people. Paul could have felt like a failure. And then he travels down south to Corinth, to the corrupt city, filth, and illicit sex, and if there were drugs back then, they did it. And it was a harbor town, and it was dirty. And he thought, what's going to happen here? And he stayed with them a year and a half, and a congregation grew up. Because that's what God wanted at the time. And so that's why St. Paul wrote these words. He says, each did what the Lord gave him to do. I planted, he started some of the mission congregations, and Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is important because only God makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have the same goal, and each will receive a reward for his own work. We are God's co-workers in God's field. So why do we do what we do? We got vacation Bible school coming up in a couple of weeks which is our greatest endeavor of most effort for the entire year, hoping again for over 100 kids this year. And you know, there is a method in our madness, too, to get the kids. Because if you get the kids, maybe you'll get the parents, too. What are your successes? Teaching a little child a Bible story, a nephew, a niece, a grandchild, a child, visiting somebody who's really hurting and they need to know that Jesus is for them, 
How about God's success? God's success is measured in his saving us. God called Ezekiel to be his spokesman. It says he prepared him with the word and with the spirit. And he told them that many would probably not listen. But he said, simply be faithful, speak the word regularly, and then it would be God's responsibility to save. You see, God has always taken the responsibility for successes to save people. And his success, his ultimate success, was on the cross. When Jesus came, everybody was looking for someone to go to the top, but not to be on the bottom. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And God's seeming failure, greatest failure, failure turns into God's greatest success. The chief symbol of God's failure is the cross. The cross for us now is God's symbol of success. Isn't it kind of interesting? I wear a cross. You heard me say this before. I wear a cross, a pectoral cross. Some of you maybe are wearing crosses on your chain. Back in Jesus' day, the cross was an ugly sight. That's where that, that was capital punishment. That's where you hung and you died. It's like a, a guillotine or a gas chamber. Ugly, ugly sight. We wear these ugly sights around our neck because now they are a thing of beauty because Jesus didn't stay dead on the cross. He rose again to guarantee us that all sins are forgiven. And so the cross stands as a reminder of God's plan that he uses each and every one of us as a spokesman about the cross. It's a reminder of God's success that he did redeem the world through his son. It's a reminder of our calling simply to be faithful to the word. And the cross is a reminder of all of our weaknesses, and we all have them. But to be faithful to God's word because God has the strength and simply let God do the increase. So again, we ask the question, how do you measure success and failure, top or bottom, first place or last? By God's standards, success is simply being faithful in proclaiming a rummage sale, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, hot dog giveaways, Bible class, with every opportunity to say God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness is free for you because so many people don't get it even when you say it. Again, back to Ezekiel, verse 4. This is what the Almighty Lord says. Whether these rebellious people listen or not, they will realize that a prophet has been among them. And so in conclusion, pardon my incorrect grammar, there is a prophet in Cop's neighborhood. 
and the prophet is us. And that's success. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please stand. The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. We confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We take this time to gather our tithes and our offerings and our connection cards. <laughs> 